Good morning, vendors and non-vendors alike, and welcome back to the Republic City Dispatch, Data Bending's number one legend of core resource. Get your ducks in a row and dig deep, dispatchers. We're a mere week away from joining Korra and Team Avatar in a beautifully animated romp through the spirit world. Meet the Korras. Find the first Avatar. We're going in with Matt, Dave, and Devendra. Hello, welcome back to Republic City Dispatch. Man, it's been a little while since we've all talked. Yeah. Uh, mostly because there hasn't been a whole lot going on in the Coraverse. Uh, probably, I guess, till until uh, Comic Con when um, sure. the whole crew showed up to reveal pretty much a, a trailer and 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 they showed the first episode. So there are a few lucky few that have seen the uh, the very the premiere that we are awaiting uh, next week. But yes, we finally have things to talk about. So Republic City Dispatch is back. I am Matt Patches. With me, as always, Devinder Hardwar. Hello. And Dave Gonzalez. Hello. Still spelled with a seven. Yeah, we're ba- it's like going back to school, except this is more fun than school. It has it has that back to school smell. Do you guys have a smell that you associate with the first day of school, or is that just me? I don't know. Fresh books. I mean, I like, I, I like new notebooks. Those always feel like they're open to uh, possibilities and opportunity. I don't know. Yeah, I always thought it had like a, a tinge of uh, uh, chalk dust in mm-hmm. the air as if that's some but they don't have chalkboards anymore yeah unless so, if you had chalk yeah chalkboards in your classroom yeah, i've been i've been making my pabu trapper keeper so you know we're on our <laughs> oh, way gosh. if they oh, make man. those i'm buying one the new lisa <laughs> frank edition um I do trapper keeper yeah <laughs> well we have a, a three-parter here uh, at least that's what we're planning on doing so why don't we dive right in and start talking about things uh davindra and i are proud owners of the Cora Blu-ray. Dave, what happened? Uh, You know, I haven't got on this whole Blu-ray thing you guys are on, and, you know, having been someone that bought all the iTunes episodes as they were coming out so I could see them in beautiful HD, I kind of uh, just Uh, rewatch the series when I feel like it. Oddly enough, I also bought... I also bought the iTunes huh. HD episodes, and I still bought the Blu-ray because I'm a psychopath. And That's oddly what enough, they want to do. Yeah. yeah, well, Mike and Brian do commentaries on all the episodes along with key players in the series. And even they, in the first commentary of the first episode, are like, do people still buy Blu-rays? Do they <laughs> listen to commentaries? And that's when I felt like a fool. I'm like, they don't <laughs> even want me to own this set. What am I doing? I mean, I'd feel better about the digital copies if they actually came with the commentaries, too, and the, you know, minuscule special features we have in the Blu-ray. Uh, it's it's kind of shame to have that trade-off, you know? Yeah. I mean, the Blu-ray is not that fulfilling. I, I guess I bought it as a devout follower. Sure. Um, and I wish there was a bit more to it because I know the process of making an episode of Korra is so laborious. You know, they and talk about... And this is out... the best possible version of the show. Like, as good as your iTunes HD right. version is, you know, it's... Uh, I can watch it on my TV, 1080 better. glory. <laughs> um, but yeah, the, I mean, there's so much to making an episode. They talk about in the commentaries that they started conceiving the show in like 08 or 09. Things got rolling in 2010 and then it took that long to get the episodes, the first batch of episodes going uh, and in front of us. And that process is so amazing. And we, as people who are interested in it, know a bit about what goes into the writing and the animatics and the sending it overseas to have it animated and that whole process. But I would have loved to see that. And you don't really get that on the Blu-ray. You get, I mean, Mike and Brian talk about it a little bit. But even they're like, what? I don't remember the last time I listened to a... DVD commentary. 
um, which I just still love. I love DVD commentaries. Uh, yeah. They're trapped on these discs sometimes, right? And now we're like, we're used to podcasts and we're used to a little more on demand content. Uh, we haven't. That's what we're here for. Yeah. I guess that's right. Listen to us instead of a real commentary. <laughs> well, I mean, did you guys listen to. There's a few podcasts out there for, you know, shows where the showrunner will actually yes. come out and do podcasts like. God bless all your Breaking Bad analyzing podcasts, but there is an official Breaking Bad podcast that I only listened to. That that was great. I think the Battlestar Galactica one, Ron Moore actually just put his podcasts on the DVDs instead of doing new commentaries, which was... I don't know. Ron Moore could be as lazy as he wants. That that was troublesome. Like, that one, um, by the way, Ron Moore would, like, record this thing, I think, just on his laptop in his den, and he would smoke... And he would like flick the lighter like right into the microphone. So you'd be listening to the commentary and it's like, oh, he's smoking up again. It's really annoying. Uh, but yeah, I think that was the first popular show to do their own podcast. And that was fantastic. By but the, the way. insight was worth. Yeah, uh, it was worth the stuff. Torture. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, and, and having dug into the Blu-ray a little bit, I think there's a focus here that we want to get into about. How much was it able to make it into Korra? Um, that's the most insightful thing that I learned listening to Mike and Brian kind of go back through the episodes and realize that they had so many ideas, that the world was so dense, that they wrote backstories for every character, which I think is very apparent watching it. And I think in our past episodes, sure. we touched upon that, that everyone feels very vibrant, even when they get one scene. Um, there, there, are, there are details here and there that are true insights. My biggest revelation watching the Blu-rays and commentaries was learning how to pronounce anime, finally. It's not anime. It's anime. Yeah, well, I mean, so you could have watched, you know, like Sesame Street and learned something about that, but that's what you learned from Korra? Yes. Somebody didn't grow up watching Saturday anime on the Sci-Fi Channel. Well, I guess I wonder if that was part of the problem. So Anime. Yeah, no, that's, the Japanese that is pronunciation the is anime, but nobody says that. Like, that's not... That's not the way it's been well, anglicized. Mike and I Brian guess. say anime. Yeah, whatever. This is this is GIF anime. versus GIF, and Wait, the well, correct answer is GIF. So think let's move about on. Where it's based off of too, like anime is the Japanization of uh, animation. So we're just it's kind of taking it back, you know, a little to the source word. So I I don't know. You can you could do it both ways, but I found that the most desperate and sad otaku are the ones that are so like anime. That's that's all I do. Right, man, well, you guys are not get... selling me on this Blu-ray. <laughs> I know, I know, we get a lot of crap about pronunciation on this podcast sometimes, so that's why I'm going out of my way to pronounce <laughs> anime correctly. Um, the other really interesting thing I learned from Blu-ray um, that's just totally factual and not kind of leading us into the discussion we're about to have, sure. so I'm getting way off track. Um, is I did not realize that the the guy who plays Amon, Steve Bloom. Um, voice actor, tons, tons of things. And we may have even talked about this before, yeah, but it was we, still I'm like sure a surprise that, uh, that he was the voice of Spike on Cowboy Bebop. <laughs> I think Matt was not paying attention during no. the early part of our... Uh, I, I yeah. swear we have talked about that. I, did, um, I talked about it because he, he is a very popular voice actor. He shows up right. in video games and stuff too. But I just love hearing his voice. And it is, he's, he's really, I don't know, he was fitting for Amon, definitely. The other thing that I learned is how much backlash she got for voicing spike are you aware of that i remember some of that yeah i, I mean, guess i mean yeah. the dubs dubbing over anime dubbing over anything is an often uh you know it, it it 
puts people in a rage mode. It's, and it's as good as Steve is, and I think his voice is perfect for Amon because he's such a charmer. He can be. Um, it's still, I was surprised to hear that so many people kind of came after him when he oh, voiced Spike. Idiots. Especially anime fans. Anime fans can be idiots. Like, you, when you have something anime. good, you don't... Oh, God. I'm going to say anime, Okay. I, <laughs> Matt, who just watched Cowboy Bebop uh, for the first time. Um, I, the thing is, like, uh, did you watch Cowboy Bebop subbed or dubbed? Watched it dubbed. Okay. And actually, I wouldn't blame you because I think um, yeah, it's really what that choice. show did and a lot of the Bandai shows is that they actually, they, uh, they not quite changed some dialogue, but they kind of wrote the show to better suit the dubs and they had better actors. So I actually, personally, I prefer listening to Cowboy Bebop in dub form because it's such a Western series. And I think that was like a precursor to like these truly like Western made anime series like Korra. Like that, that was our first taste of it, really. Yes, so I, I just thought that was a revelation, not just <laughs> to hear him be the voice, but also to hear the backlash and, and to hear Mike and Brian defend him. Um, I think they get a lot of backlash themselves from fans, um, and they're very the open about it. Japanese, because uh, it's an American-produced show. Yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but they, they, they have an open relationship, and um, I think that's the most insightful thing. Let, let them go. Let them be. Let them do their thing. Uh, let them make their choices, and uh, we'll end up with something great. Uh, why, why don't we jump in more into what we wanted to talk about based on the Blu-ray? Um, Dave, as someone who seems to be exploring lots of um, the outside storytelling from the main narrative of Korra or Avatar The Last Airbender through comic books and web series, I mean, do you think this is – does this seem to be bustling over from Mike and Brian's imagination? Does it – is it – coming alive um, through other people's filters successfully because it seems that, I mean, based on what they say in the Blu-ray, there's so much material overflowing from what they've written or what they were able to show us in the show. I mean, and, and I'm going to use two pieces specifically to compare and contrast here. One would be The Search, which is two parts into its three-part series, which is the original uh, gang um, walking around trying to find Zuko's mom and teaming up with Azula and sort of discovering Zuko's past and the other one would be Republic City Hustle which was a three-part web series that was on Nickelodeon.com and was actually written by an Avatar writer Tim Hedrick but seems like it was pulled almost specifically from story sessions uh, mm. to build season one whereas uh, The Search it uh, definitely has other writers uh, through through Dark Horse and are working from a sort of idea of um, Michael and Brian's story. Uh, but they're not the ones that are actually getting down and writing it. That's uh, Gene Yang, I believe. Uh, and so it's sort of interesting to see how the search uh, is definitely... It's hewing close to what we've seen in part two... We get to see um, some stuff that we've seen animated in the original Avatar series, like when Zuko's mom leaves. Uh, we get to see her perspective on that from when um, Ozai uh, basically says he wants uh, Iroh's place on the throne uh, when the Fire Lord dies and the Fire Lord tells him he's got a cap to kill Zuko. And in the series, something happens where Zuko's mom disappears and Zuko doesn't die and we don't, aren't really sure. The search has doubled back and showed that exact same scene from uh, Zuko's mom's perspective, mm. Ursa, which is also exactly why, you know, uh, After Earth really freaked me out, because that's the name of the fear 
uh, mid, uh, what is it? The Scientology fear, <laughs> the monster. fear monster. Yeah. Oh my god. That's also I'm M Night Shyamalan, and I'm just like, God, get out of the world, Shyamalan. Anyway, Latin for bear. Uh, yes. Yeah. Well, let's not get into bears either. Yeah. That's true. That's exactly why you hate it, Dave. You I know about uh, you and bear. Yeah, I'm. I'm not th- all that into bears. Anyway, but then Republic <laughs> City Hustle is uh, three years prior to the beginning of Korra. We get to see uh, Mako and Bolin and uh, PJ Byrne and um, oh, David Faustino are reprising their roles. And we get to see, A, how they met Pabu, which is the greatest thing in the world, and B, how they ended up sort of getting out from under um, the... Oh, oh man, the uh, what's the name of the gang that they were part of? This is why I should triads. have a, the triads, it's, uh, the triple threat triads and Shady Shin. There we go. Those things come together. How they get under the out from under the triads thumb and end up living in the pro bending arena. And that seems almost like it's essential uh, to Korra in a way where it's like it's a um, story that I already kind of had a question about and sort of needed uh, something to fill in just for my enjoyment of the full world of this story. Whereas something like what the search is going on, it's expanding on questions I had, but it's expanding in so many weird directions that I don't really, there's like a co-partner spirit or something at the end of part two. It's something like a lady with multiple faces or who has control over giving people faces. And it just sort of feels like, somebody is taking this core question we had of what happened to Zuko's mom and is going off into like this crazy almost like sub novel amount of detail (laughs) where it's like adding all these different characters and all these different backstories and those backstories aren't intersecting with backstories that we've seen before it's creating this whole other branch that is sort of weirdly not canon whereas Republic City Hustle (laughs) feels very much like it could have been Mm, aired at the end of Korra episodes and done really well What's interesting is part of you, part of me wants that type of um, creator, new creator-driven material that's spinning off ideas of the world. Um, I, I want that because I want to see how other people would interpret this world. Um, but the other part of me does, and I don't know if this is kind of goofy, but wants things to adhere to the rules that have been set down by a world. And sometimes I agree with you that the search kind of is going into crazy town um, because – and Mike, Mike actually references this, uh, although actually it might be Brian who, who says this. One of the guys, when they are in story sessions talking about Korra, everyone will come to the table with crazy ideas. Like how can we make this world bigger and take full advantage of everything that's on the table? And then Brian comes in and says, well, no, guys, you know, and uh, bending doesn't allow you cannot do that. It's not canon. So he's his own comic book guy. Um, he's <laughs> the he scrutinizing be. fan. Exactly. And I think, sure. yeah, I agree with you. I mean, if anybody needs person, to be the comic book guy for this series, it should be him. That's true. He, he looks apart. Um, <laughs> he's got the glasses to do it. But he uh, I mean, is, is that limiting a world or is that keeping a world by adhering strictly to canon? Are you helping? the world and i often think of star wars being the series that we've seen so much other storytelling happening on all facets of this universe and most of it is bad like when i don't like playing the video games where i can use the force to like bring down a star destroyer you know that 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 doesn't make sense that's oh man you can't do that i I don't know So, yeah, I mean, Force Unleashed was awesome, Patches. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> like, the thing, you have to separate, like, what is, I don't know, what is the good, like, satellite 
material within the universe and what's the bad and then there's the fan created stuff and i actually think the fan stuff like you know as a as a kid and teenager on the internet back in the day fandom was where i lived that's what i you know just ate up so i haven't really you're reading fan fiction as a kid i mean come on yeah weren't you i don't know what i was doing as a kid i was writing roar fan fiction as a kid you guys remember roar yes yes it was great i had a oh that we uh, should not get into this now, but yes, fan fiction I've is awesome. About my love for Sailor Moon on the show <laughs> and how it like kind of got me into anime and all sorts of things. But yes, that fan fiction. Um, actually, there's there's like a long running Sailor Moon fan fiction thing that's considered by many like geeks and comic fans to be like one of the seminal pieces of fan fiction. So like there is good stuff there. You just kind of have to look for it. But yeah, the worry is that you know s- some of this other extra universe stuff could be harmful. At the same time, I think that's it's a good sign that the creator really wants to keep the core stuff kind of true to their vision. Um, right. And, you know, there, there's room for other stuff to explore other things, I hope. Well, what's interesting is how the search goes out of its way not to right. connect to Korra. You read in the <laughs> foreword of the book that it says, Mike and Brian were like, hey, you know what? Don't really approach us with the, this book, this storyline. You don't have to <laughs> kind of tether the two or find the connective tissue. We're, you Do what you want with the search. Uh, we're going to play in Coraland over here. Um, and what's interesting, I, I think that Republic C- City Hustle is really successful because it's intimate storytelling, because it's character-driven and not just some crazy plot, which I think the search suffers from a bit, just trying to twists and mysteries and, and big ideas. Whereas we're learning about Mako and, um, and Bolin, and we care about these people. And it's obviously coming from a place that Mike and Brian care about. You know, in the commentary on the Blu-ray, they talk about how, you know, why does Mako know how to lightning bend? Um, where did he learn that? And they thought about how, oh, maybe he w- when he was running with the triads or when he was part of the crime world, that he would have picked it up from um, lightning bolt Zolt. That he would have been trained and l- picked that skill up being part of the underworld. Um, and they love bad guys teaching our heroes skills. That really sure. is, is something that entices them from a storytelling standpoint. I find that really intriguing. And, and Hustle kind of delves into that, which is weird because Hustle has a more playful tone. It's a different type of animation. It it's, lives on Nickelodeon's website. This is very, you know, this is, this is trying to get the kids to come back and watch or Cora, but this hey, is about kid. the seedy underbelly <laughs> of, of Republic City and how you're like bribing people to throw their pro bending matches, and you know it's it's a very strange. That's um, oh, great though. I mean, it reminds me of the days when like Nickelodeon shows there there was stuff like Ren and Stimpy and Rocco's Modern Life. I actually just bought all of Rocco on uh, on DVD. Nice, and uh, yeah, they. Like they they had adult themes. They weren't afraid, and maybe the kids would have no clue what's actually going on. But uh, I, I do feel like watching those shows, watching The Simpsons and things like King of the Hill early on, um, kind of cemented these I don't know more interesting storytelling ideas for me. And I wonder what these things are doing for these kids growing up watching these shows. Right. Yeah, and I'm and I'm glad they can kind of throw these ideas out there. Right. We can do web animation, and it can be good. Um, and, and I really like the designs. They hired someone from within the like designing world of Korra who was just drawing in the probably in the like closet, dark closet. And, hey, you want another job? Yes, please. Um, and they got her to design all these. My time to um, prove myself. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing 2D looks. And that's another thing. Just like keeping different types of animation alive when 
the landscape is so sterile. I was bemoaning mm. on Dave and I's other podcast, actually, Operation Kino. It's a plug right there. Hey. Um, about this year in animation and how depressing it was for me because mm. obviously I love animation. Obviously, I'm dying for the Hayao Miyazaki film, The the Wind Has Fallen. What is, what is it called? I don't know. Someone look that up. Um, it doesn't matter what it's called. I'm dying to see it because right. it's like the because number one film in Japan and everyone's yeah. going crazy for it. And we can't get a 2D animated film made in America. Ugh. You know, in the, what was the last one? Maybe Princess and the Frog or something. Um, and it's just really depressing to me when, like, Turbo and even Monsters University and Despicable Me 2, these are not movies that I'm really dying to see. Right. And I'm not saying that it's 3D animation doing that. It just seems to be a sterilization of the animation scene. And Korra is really, I don't want to say I'm retreating to Korra because I like it on a storytelling. I like it for so many reasons. But I, I am kind of retreating. I'm just like... <laughs> Taking, I'm, I'm living in the. Uh, oh my God! What does Luke live in when he cuts <laughs> open the blubber and the, uh, the, what the is it? tauntaun? tauntaun. I'm living inside uh. the tauntaun belly of Korra. Well, it's, right it's like a little. It's an oasis, right? We're in like yeah. a, a desert of 2D animation right now. It's it's great. It's fantastic to see it. Like everything Korra is doing, animation wise are the things I loved about uh, anime, and I'm going to continue saying anime, Matt, um, in the 90s. Like, that is, that's it. Like, just great cell shaded animation, almost like a watercolor look to the backgrounds. Um, it's it's painterly in a way that, uh, you know, I don't, I haven't seen 3D animation really get there at this point. I've seen really good-looking 3D films. Uh, I think Wally really comes to mind for me. Yeah. But... At the same time, like you, you have that freedom, and I think few people actually making 3D films are trying to make something that's sort of like an artistic statement. You know, yes. it's, it's just easier to just, hey, I can I can put these characters into a computer, get the stuff out. It's so much easier than doing hand drawn animation anymore, or even even like digital animation. Yeah, and I think it's it's really rare to see something that is 3D and also takes the time to have a sense of design and cinematography about it. Because it almost seems like, you know, 3D existed, especially with something like Turbo. It's like that entire thing exists to see a snail move fast. And that's what they think, you know, is cool about. Uh, Since never ending story, I've been waiting to see another snail. That's right. Oh, man. But then something I... like Paranorman, everything is designed to look like it's supposed to exist in Paranorman's oh, right. world and not our world. And so that can happen with 3D. It just it's it, it's difficult. I guess that's always been the problem with animation, too. Like, back when, you know, we were getting more 2D animated stuff, it was still considered something for kids. So we had a lot more, you know, traditional animation, but it wasn't, like, it wasn't very good, and especially on uh, American television. Like, we weren't getting, even the stuff that Korra, like, the level of what Korra is doing now, we weren't really even getting that. Um, I'm still waiting for, like, a good Gargoyles DVD re-release or something. Oh, man. That show... That show. ...was really much better than it needed to be. I don't think you'll get that until they figure out if they're remaking it into a live-action movie or not. I feel like <sighs> they've been trying to do that for a long time. Yeah, so many sighs. But, uh, I don't know. I mean, for now, let's enjoy Korra for what it is. And honestly, like... Matt, I'm glad you started going back and looking at older anime series because that's that's essential. Like, that is stuff that, you know, you look at it now and even the way Cowboy Bebop is animated and just put together now, we don't see that today. Like, Cowboy right. Bebop had a bit of CG and a bit of 3D kind of put in there and some computer stuff, but there was still 
I don't know, just like something very painterly about it that I really do miss. Um, I'm looking forward to the new Miyazaki as well. That's The Wind Rises. So, yeah. This is I, I was... too too like wistful. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Although I was curious just to wrap this up. I mean, I think Dave, you we we would all three of us would encourage people to check out Republic City Hustle if you haven't seen it and Dave Definitely. and I would might cautiously recommend the search. Uh we have uh, in October part 3 comes out and at some point in the future you should subscribe to this feed however you got a hold of this <laughs> podcast because we'll loop back to it I guarantee you. So we'll is it actually worth bigger. reading because I'm worried about paperbacks aimed at kids. Like, that's my main thing. Oh, I mean, it's not like, uh, what was the one they put out? Avatar Adventures or whatever. Right, that was right. just little shorts. This, both The Search and The Promise are complete stories. Okay. I would just recommend that if you aren't into that culture of waiting around and trying to get first printings of things that are really popular at your local comic book shop, just wait until all three parts come out and buy it and read it as one story. Right. And and it is it skews a little more mature than the original series. I mean, this is obviously catering to the people who need something to do between core books so um I, I would i would recommend it or do a big collection at the end as dave suggests if you're not into going your local too, comic like, book short yeah oh yeah It'll that's a good sort of mind yeah, that's a good yeah. point is that when they did uh the promise the promise got a beautiful hardcover release of all three parts plus like some pencil tests and this it was printed on very beautiful paper and it's expensive as all get out but it made me regret <laughs> not buying it that way so oh, right. wait wait a little bit after it ends and, and get avoid the... tumblr for spoilers yeah um i just want to wrap up before mm-hmm. we go to our next segment davindra you probably have this the best i i see an anime uh yeah. <laughs> really <laughs> Um, now you're like going between the two different pronunciations. So. Uname, uname. Um, I'm just going to create my own uh, <laughs> pronunciation there. Uh, I, I see anime really showing its face in a lot of this year's blockbusters. Since we last chatted, we've seen Pacific Rim and Elysium and these oh, big sure. movies that I feel are, are so connected to anime culture, even more so than Korra. You know, what's interesting to me is that Mike and Brian will rattle off live-action American feature films when they start talking inspiration. You hear a few of them in the Blu-ray commentaries. Um, Hudsucker Proxy comes up a lot. Oh, Coen Brothers film, which, excellent reference. If you have wow. never seen Hudsucker, Hudsucker Proxy, it's a movie no one saw when it came out in theaters. I'm sure kids and it will is love it. hilarious. It, I think kids actually would love it. It has a very yeah. light tone. It's very funny. Um, but they don't reference anime a lot. I mean, they have to because they take some stylistic cues from it and they, it's unavoidable because everyone else compares it. But mm-hmm. why, why do you think – I mean, what, what is the anime that seems to be influential in all these movies that we're seeing? Uh, I guess it's mecha anime. Do you have any recommendations? It's a bunch of different things. So. Yeah, it's Gundam. Uh, when it comes to Pacific Rim, which I loved, by the way, I loved every. Go listen to the Flash Film Cast review of Pacific Rim. <laughs> but uh, Devendra and I have had online public battles about oh, why man. Pacific oh, Rim man. is a failure of a movie. Yeah, I was. By the way, man, I was listening to your podcast oh, review no. of Pacific Rim on the way back from San Francisco, and it was like I was trying to contain myself in the plane because it was like I think it was uh, maybe Eric, like one of your co-hosts who. Was oh yeah. Just like, 
just refuses to engage with the movie. But anyway, I loved Pacific Rim. And it is exactly everything I love about anime. Just like broad, sweeping themes, uh, sort of like, uh, you know, bold characters. And I think what I also love about anime is the way they tell stories visually. You know, there's sometimes not very much uh, dialogue. Um, the story is painted in action through the images we see, through the background and how stories built. I'd look at something like uh, Neon Genesis Evangelion, which, uh, by the way, Pacific Rim really, really lifted from. Like, an entire scene pretty much lifted from that show. Um, but that show also had, like, really simple hand-drawn animation, and they had budget issues, so they had to, like, repeat frames, and they had to repeat dialogue. And certain episodes, when they, uh, by the end of that series, when they, like, lost their entire budget... Two episodes are pretty much still pictures. Like you're just the camera's panning over still pictures, and you're still kind of getting a sense of the story. Um, in terms of mecha anime and other things to watch, definitely watch Evangelion. Uh, definitely watch Escaflone, which nobody talks about anymore. But I actually thought that's a lot of fun. Is that it's because sort of, it never really made it here, or you no, would it was have here. to kind it was of on Cartoon Network? Like oh. it was one of the more popular ones. But I, uh, I think sorry, it wasn't really the big O. That's the one that I watched. Oh, well, Big O was good, but it was it was not nearly as good. <laughs> it was Big not. O was like sort of a self-referential cartoon kind of like trying to do Batman the Animated Series a bit with some really old school like Japanese giant robot stuff. So I love Big O. It's a fun show. Uh, have you guys heard of Escaflone? I am not too familiar. Okay. I'd recommend it. I can't even um, pronounce it, so... Escaflone. It is a combination of everything. It's a combination space opera, kind of teenage drama, also giant robots... Also, like, just crazy martial arts. Uh, not Well, not really martial arts, but crazy action. And there's actually a hint of uh, a hint of core in there, too, because there's one villain who is a complete insane pyromaniac. Um, it's about a girl who gets transported to a world that's kind of in the sky, but we've never seen it before. And uh, kind of the adventure she goes on there. I'd highly recommend that just because it has kind of similar themes to Korra and to Avatar. And I'm actually pretty sure it was one of the more influential shows for the creators here because you have like the typical animal creatures and animal like, I don't know, humanized animals kind of living together with people. Um, just kind of broad sweeping stories. And it still it tries to be some sort of a space opera too. It almost sounds like Saga. Do you read... Uh Oh, yeah, Brian yeah, yeah. Brian K. Vaughn's Saga comics. It is very, it's actually somewhat similar to Saga. Basically, like any of these shows that go over, like, I don't know, space opera type stuff, uh, they, they kind of kind of feel similar. Uh, I haven't really watched many of the early Gundam shows. Um, and I think Gundam G was the one that Pacific Rim really lifted from. I remember Gundam Wing was really pos popular in the U.S. because it was airing on Cartoon Network. And that one is kind of easy to get into because it's less about the military history and more about, like, these teenage kids who are also soldiers and piloting cool uh, ships and stuff. I'd really recommend Evangelion. It will break your brain and your soul. Um, <laughs> Escaflone for more fun in stuff. In a good way. Yeah. <laughs> Escafloni for more fun stuff. Um, and there's a whole slew of Gundam stuff. Uh, the thing about Gundam is a lot of the stuff is really early. So you're watching somewhat simplistic animation. I think uh, the second Gundam movie, Char's, uh, Char's Revenge or Char's Attack, um, is really good. It's a great movie, but you're watching like 80s level animation, which is kind of tough to deal with. And it's not as pretty as something like Akira. So harder to get into, but I definitely recommend it. Um, definitely Evangelion, though. Like, my God. So, just so fantastic. That Watch show... them only, only for, at least for the foundation that seems to be so prevalent in American also... blockbusters at this point. 
they're fantastic shows. Like, oh, yeah. yeah that we're the insane. foundation. The thing, what I love about the creatives working in television and in movies today is that we all kind of grew up with the same stuff. You know, we grew up with video game influences. So you look at Edgar Wright and just like the pop culture references he shoves into all of his stuff. You know, Scott Pilgrim is a movie that couldn't have been made. I, I don't think it could have been made with somebody who wasn't really a part of this generation and really grew up and saw a lot of this stuff. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. We're really we're seeing the benefits of people growing up geek and geek being a little more I don't know, mainstream. It's and a positive like thing. Cool yeah. stuff. Yeah. As we prepare for Korra book two spirits, um, we're, we're going to briefly mm. talk about that uh, and what we've seen so far in a third segment. But first, we're going to cut to something we did earlier this year. Devendra, can you just set this up, what we're about to hear and, and the amazing work that you guys did to uh, to kind of make this happen? Or what was it for? We did a podcast marathon for Film Aid, which is a nonprofit organization that works to bring the power of film to an African uh, refugee camp. And this may sound kind of crazy. I think when we started doing this, people were like, really? I think people need things more than film and they need other, they need like bare necessities. Um, I actually thought, you know, me and David Chen, uh, my co-host at the Slash Filmcast, we thought this was a really just interesting way to utilize everything we love, which is about film, and to actually help the people in this refugee camp as well. Um, it kind of it goes towards showing people how to use the technology, but also how to help them document their lives and their struggle. And I think that's a really powerful thing with film. You know, you can see a world that you don't live in. You can view experiences you've never seen before. And uh, we wanted to help make that a possibility. So, yeah, we raised um, over $10,000, I believe, and we podcasted for like 10 hours. It was kind of ridiculous. And we had a whole bunch of guests, but uh, the one relevant to this show, uh, we talked to Jeremy Zuckerman, uh, one of the composers from the Chorus soundtrack, and also, yeah, the original Avatar soundtrack as well. And, yeah, just had a really interesting conversation, and I hope you guys enjoy it. Well, thanks for joining us, Jeremy. Um, yeah, good yeah. to talk to you again. Yeah, it's been a while. Yeah. I haven't gotten to chat with you before, but I know you've chatted with Dave and Matt, so yes. this is a bit of a reunion. Cool. Yep. I know, we're reconnecting. I, uh, I abused Jeremy. I think I ran after him at Comic-Con <laughs> almost maybe three years ago at this point, but it was yeah. a good, he, he was a good kind of attack. And hugged me. Yeah, it was nice. Uh, it's nice to be loved. <laughs> it's, it's interesting to have you back, and now instead of an Avatar miniseries, you're working on the full-blown second iteration of Avatar The Last Airbender and The Legend of Korra. That's right, there, that's right. We have three new seasons now that have been announced, and I'm assuming you'll be along the ride for the ride. Yeah, yeah you know, unless I get fired, but uh, so, so far so good. So. <laughs> well, actually, that's the big scoop that we've got for this segment. Oh, uh, great. <laughs> no, uh, but Jeremy, we, we talked to you a lot before... Um, Legend of Korra happened about some of what was going into that and kind of reviving the show and some new tactics you were taking. Um, so I'm curious, now we're nine months after the end of book one of Legend of Korra, and we've seen some stuff at Comic-Con, but where, where are you in the actual process of writing music for the show right now? Um, I'm about, uh, I guess, a bit of over a third um, through book two. Oh, wow. um, so, yeah, you know, it's moving along. This is the thick of it. Yeah. Yeah. And we sort of skipped nice. around a little bit. Um, so we, we, we actually did the tent pole stuff first, um, which was quite a way to jump back into it. It was like, you know, got used to um, the break and we just jumped back into the most ep you know, epic <laughs> episodes possible. 
<laughs> um, but it's also nice because it sort of set the tone in a lot of ways and established a lot of se- um, themes. Um, gotcha. So working. So you know, by t- by temple stuff, you mean like what the biggest themes of the season, or what some yeah, yeah, episodes? sort of like right, like the big the big sort of episodes of the of the season. Okay. Um, I guess I have to be careful. Mm. <laughs> yes. Well, uh, I mean, well, we expect action, so uh, it's, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. there's a little bit, sure. a little bit of action. There will be bending. Um, yes, we I can, can tell you we that. We can try to. We know a little bit that there will be some interaction with the spirit world. Is that something you could talk about? Finding a sound for that. I mean, to, for people yeah. that don't know, Av- uh, Legend of Korra, there's there's part of it that takes place in a spirit world. That's that's all I need to know. Mm. About, going about. right, going right for the the heart there, Dave. Yeah, <laughs> forget about those people. Forget that. <laughs> no, just kidding. Um, yeah, it's. Uh, uh, I had to find, you know, sort of a new, a new kind of a tonal palette. Um, and the nice thing was the tent poles deal directly with the with the spiritual um, world. Um, it gets right into it, sort of the apex of it, um, at least so far from what I've been exposed to. Um, so yeah, so I brought in some instrumentation. Um, I guess I could talk a little bit about it. Um, Gamelon seemed to work nicely, um, and some shakuhachi, just some stuff that isn't traditionally Chinese, hmm. um, and that sort of, you know, informed some of the string writing and some of the other instrumental writing um, in a way that seemed to have that's uh, seemed to have persisted. So you know, it's it's sort of new uh, sounds. Sorry, I said new sounds. Yeah, new sounds, new sort of ideas. Um, and then definitely some old ideas are remaining. Um, well, I think, Jeremy, I think this kind of speaks to, and, and we'll probably get into a little more about Cora uh, a bit later, but this kind of speaks to what I think works so well with your music and your approach to both Cora and Airbender and about where you come from as a composer. Um, because unlike, at least in my mind, a lot of television music, um, you seem to come with a different kind of background, and you love world music, and I think you own a, hu- uh, a flute made out of a human bone, if I recall <laughs> from previous conversations. Um, you, you just know a lot about music, so I'm kind of curious for the people out there who may not know as much about uh, your background as we do, where, where did you guys come from? And I say you guys because you work uh, pretty closely with um, Ben Wynn, who is right. your second half of Track Team, which is the, mm. the monk here, moniker of... of the people composing music for Airbender. So just a little bit about where you come from um, musically. Yeah, um, definitely. Come, I've, I've always sort of felt a little bit on the outside, um, you know, when talking to other film composers. And, I, you know, I get the dreaded question, like, you know, what's your favorite film score or, you know, what film composers, you know, inspired you? And obviously there are. All right, taking those off the uh, question <laughs> list right there. <laughs> we can answer that. It could be an interesting, interesting answer. Those questions, you know, but those, those things came later for me, like uh, – you know, orig- originally I was uh, really just into into sort of um, heavy metal and guitar. Um, as a teenager, I really got into that stuff. I was in bands. Um, but I also really liked, um, you know, sort of a, a left brain approach to music as well as the right brain. I sort of like the full brain. And I got into classical music a little later. And then uh, I went to Berkeley College of Music and got into music synthesis and uh, music technology and sort of got away from um, I describe it, you know, more sort of traditional music. I got into some pretty esoteric stuff and then went to Cal Arts and got really esoteric and <laughs> way to do of, it. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, just went for it and like, you know, sort of for a while stopped experimenting with harmony, melody and rhythm altogether. And a lot of people are like, well, what's left, but there's actually a whole world of stuff left. 
Um, and I'm not just talking about like drones or something, but sort of very specific um, musical approaches that, that you don't really find in the mainstream. Can you give an you example know? of something like that? Or maybe even how that kind of approach leaks into the TV composing you do? Sure. Well, uh, you know, I, I always sort of sneak it in there so it, so it works. <laughs> um, but like, um, like for Amon, his theme is this, this sort of this texture of these pitch percussion. sort of his musical theme um, and that was created with this software called um, super collider which which is um which is extremely left brain it's it's um although it's also extremely powerful creatively um and it's all text there's no graphics it's it's basically programming it's coding wow um, yeah so you're basically it, writing a computer program to generate music yeah well within a computer program you're writing code mm -hmm. to generate mm -hmm. to build new instruments and to control them um, and you can do extremely powerful, extremely dense stuff that uh, wow. that would be impossible to do if you were um, if you were specifying each musical event separately. So, like you, you basically create these systems, and the systems are generative; they're algorithmic. And and you know, this you know the 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 craft is in sort of specifying the parameters of the system, so it's not just pure randomness and boring to listen to. Um, and then from there, you can just go up. You know, you can go crazy go nuts you can go off the grid you know like you know we all know music is having a scale and there's you know a limited number of notes in the scale and it's and it's got you know permutative rhythms where you know you have a tempo and you have divisions of the beat and all that stuff but with this stuff you can actually go in the cracks of all those things like you could hmm. you know you don't have to stick to any scale you could go with it in between notes and you you, you know um, rhythmically you can sort of fall away from you know this sort of um, divided rhythms and into these, you know, more textural things in the back end. And, you, you know, you can get extremely uh, controlled and, and uh, expressive, you know, almost uh, more like how nature operates than how, <laughs> you know, math operates. You know what I mean? I, it's it's wow. pretty out there. I'm getting Are there, there any other tracks that you guys have uh, worked on that kind of uh, show off those techniques? Um, uh, let's see. I, I mean, I definitely use stuff um, throughout, uh, throughout The Last Airbender. I'm trying to think of specifics, like some of the nightmare stuff, this, these mm. textures and these sort of, um, string, you know, thick sort of dissonant string te textures. Um, I know Ben uses it in the sound design a lot. He uses some of, some of those, uh, programs that we created over the years. Like I think for some of the bending, he did it. Um, yeah, you guys work pretty closely as sound designer and com music composer you know, when working on airbender and Cora. That's correct. Right, well, initially we did. We initially worked really closely for the pilot, but then we quickly found out that we just didn't have time to do both. So we had to sort of divide and conquer. Um, so Ben took the role of the sound designer and I took the role of the composer. And I think we're both a little, you know, that it, it worked out that way, but also we're, you know, I'm a little more suited for that because I, you know, I have a little bit more of a background in traditional music, whereas Ben is more of a background in, in technology, even though we both have overlap. A lot of, mm. you know, sorry. Someone on uh, Twitter at, Prank Colster uh, says he's wondering if you've traveled to any exotic places to inspire your scores, or at least have you have you traveled and and found music there that you've brought back and have inspired your music? Um, yeah, Newark, New Jersey, it's pretty crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Real cultural uh, epicenter there. Yeah. 
Um, I haven't had the fortune of really going too crazy. Ben's had some fun. I mean, not not necessarily for for music, but just traveling. I know he went to Antarctica. He's some amazing places. But I've I've basically been uh, you know stuck in my studio for a long time. Well, then um, where do you find musical inspirations for some of these you know Eastern themed? I mean, yeah. obviously that's where Airbender takes its cues from or right. Torah. Well, you know, we live in an amazing age, you know, where you can just search around online and you can talk to people, you know, find people across the world. And, you know, this uh, this this guy, uh, Hong Wang, he, he contacted me through LinkedIn, you know, right before starting Quora. And he said that he was a Chinese multi-instrumentalist and uh, he would love to work with me. And I sort of forgot about him for a little while, you know, just because, you know, I was, wasn't ready to get back into that world. And then when the time came, uh, I contacted him, and he lives in Las Vegas, and he's become, you know, a really important part of uh, of the chorus soundtrack. He, he he's all the Chinese instruments. Oh my huh. gosh, I've never thought of using LinkedIn before, and now I know. <laughs> it seems like a good idea. I know it's vital. I know I want to like I still want to cancel my account, but now because of that, I just can't. So I'm stuck. <laughs> That's but, uh, yeah. useful. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, Jeremy, I was I remember reading some interviews uh, back when uh I think right after Airbender started and you you guys were talking about like how you basically were started this whole process of composing for a TV series with very little experience, right? You were kind of learning yep. as you were yeah. going. Do you think that actually helped, you know, the process of you guys actually making music that's very unique for uh, American television? Definitely. I think um just the fact that our background was so different like neither one of us has studied film composing um, or, or orchestration. Um, and we sort of had to find, find the parallels from what we knew, you know, like, so my knowledge of computer music and sonic art, I was able to find parallels to orchestration, the way frequencies fit together and things like that. But my approach, obviously my execution was a lot different. So it definitely, I think it definitely, um, our backgrounds have informed us in weird ways, but it also was horrifying in the beginning. And it's, it, you know, it's, it took a while <laughs> before I really felt like I knew what I was doing. I can't even watch the... Honestly, I can't watch the first season. Oh, wow. But, you know, occasionally I'll catch something and then there'll be a musical moment where I'll be like, oh, that's interesting. I never would have... I never would have done that now. But that actually, you know, was interesting, you know. And then there's times where I'm just cringing and crying in the corner. (laughs) (laughs) Also, like, are you guys at all familiar with, uh, you know, anime music composers? Because... That's actually one thing I really loved about Avatar and Korra is that, you know, it brought over a lot of elements from Japanese animation, but also the idea that, hey, the score can actually be great. And I think some of the uh, anime composers out there like Yoko Kano and Taku Iwasaki, they are making some of the best, you know, composed music around right now, but only anime fans are hearing it. Yeah. Well, you know, most of the, I mean, I had very little um, exposure to that Mm -hmm. um, from the start. I'm still, I still, I wouldn't call myself a huge fan, although I'll catch things occasionally. Like, um, I just saw um, the series, oh God, of course I can't think of it right now, <laughs> with the two samurai, uh, Samurai Champloo. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. That, that was wonderful. And the, the musical approach to that was so, you yeah. know, so different. So Very different. modern, lots of like, yeah, hip hop type stuff. Right. But, and uh, the way the music functioned, <laughs> you know, it wasn't necessarily like hitting specific moments on screen mm-hmm. and all that. But I think a lot of, um, Maybe some of that is some of that uh, influence you hear in the score is is because of um, one of the creators, Brian Konitzko, and he would often sort of reference things and point us in certain directions. Um, and he, you know, he's wonderful at that. I mean, he has <laughs> some great suggestions. Um, Did they actually like point you to specific series or anything out of anime? Yeah, they, um, 
I think so. I mean, it's really hard for me at this point. Like they don't do that anymore. At okay. this point, I think we've sort of established enough of a you know a voice between all of us that mm-hmm. they don't. But I think in the beginning, yeah, there were definitely references. Maybe Cowboy Bebop, even though the music's not at all like that. Very different, yeah. <laughs> um, but there, there's a, like anything Yoko. There's Kana a sensibility does. there. Yeah, yeah. But I think some of that may have, may have just happened just because doing what was right for the project. You know what I mean? It just happened because it's anime and has a certain pacing and the you know just just Brian and Mike's influences, you know? Yeah. I'm I'm just, I'm thinking of like a dream scenario where Yoko Kano, for some reason, teams up with you guys to do some mm-hmm. Korra music, because that would be, that <laughs> would fun. just be, that would, that would live like in a dream world coming down. Into. Yeah. <laughs> Not that impossible, but I hope maybe one day. That could be cool. Um, I'm always open for collaboration. Jeremy, Definitely. you talk about, uh, not not really knowing what you were doing in the beginning of Airbender um, and not really looking to other sources um, or maybe not being steeped in, in film music knowledge. But I feel like part of writing film and television music is understanding the language that you use to convey emotion to mm-hmm. an audience. Do you feel like you had to learn that? Did you go and watch or listen to scores again to to figure out what that language is? Or did Mike and Brian just say, hey, we... We know you guys. Just do it. Well, it's, you know, a little bit of both. You know what I mean? Like, I found that, well, I, I had actually been doing, I had done a bunch of commercials before. And that, although that functionally is much different than scoring, you know, a TV or film, a TV show or film, um, as far as the range of, you know, I had, I had to get good at being able to, to express a range of emotions um, with music. And so that was sort of how I learned, just by doing the commercials and I'd probably done a couple hundred before Avatar with another with a company I was working for, so you know it was, it was good. It was a good. Th- it was fortunate that I had done that, um, or it would have been really really difficult. You uh, know, did you work with David Lee Roth of Van Halen? <laughs> yeah, something? I, sure I saw did. that in your bio, and I was like, "Well, I just need to know what the hell that was." About. <laughs> yeah, that was a great experience. I worked with him on and off for probably a year and a half. First, uh, we got called in. A friend of mine brought me in. Um, we went into Henson, and we were working on. Dave had like a few few songs that he wanted some electronics on. And I remember he said he, he just wanted a little like white wall on tires, you know, nothing too crazy. <laughs> that's, I think that's how, that's exactly how I put it. And we we show up and he's not there yet, you know. And he, and uh, we're, I'm freaking out, you know, freaking out. And he, he comes in and he's just like this huge, this huge character. Like physically he's super strong. And his energy is, just fills the room. And I remember seeing him, and as soon as I saw him, I thought to myself, that, that is a rock star. I will never, ever be able to be that. <laughs> like that's, another, that's another life form right there. Um, so <laughs> we worked on and off with him for a while. Then we did uh, his album called Diamond Dave. Um, and it was, a, it was a bunch of covers, uh, really cool covers, like from the, from the 70s. And I learned a lot about R&B from him. Just, he was, he was like Weird. listening sessions. Yeah, he was a huge R&B buff. He really knew it. That's really the world he comes from. People don't realize that. Um, we would sit around and listen to obscure R&B, and, and I got to play guitar and a bunch of tunes for him. And uh, that wasn't intimidating. 
play guitar. Uh, who is this uh, other guitarist? Eddie Van Halen. Okay, no problem. Um, I, I think uh, just because we bringing up uh, David Lee Roth here and your kind of metal background, Jeremy, I'm wondering, will there ever be a point where we get some modern instruments, like actually a guitar in the chorus soundtrack? Because I kind of love it when shows start to mix and match, uh, you know, yeah. older and more modern things. Yeah. I don't know. You know, so far it just hasn't fit in that world yet. Mm-hmm. But you never know. I mean, there is there is stuff like, you know, 20th century stuff. There's the Dixieland element in Korra. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is vaguely modern depending on how what timeline you're looking at you know and there's a little guitar in one of the songs i think it's in the first episode when they're listening to when that the vendor he's selling the um gramophone mm, and, okay. and and that that little ditty has a guitar but it's, you know, mixed right in there. And it's more of a jazz, you know, 20s gypsy kind of style thing. Well, that, that's what I love so much about the first season of Korra, that it felt reactionary. The music felt reactionary to the environments. You know, this mm-hmm. wasn't just a repeat session of what made Airbender's music so good. Um, right. Do you feel like, well, talk about a little bit that approach of reacting to the environment, exactly how you found that sound. But then I'm also curious if you're reacting in the same way to book two and if there doesn't have to be as big a consistency between book one and book two like there was I feel like Airbender had a very consistent sound throughout its three seasons but it was one large quest whereas Korra feels a little more divided like we're going to new places each time right well the, the one constant I think that will remain with Korra is the live string ensemble and Hong so there, there's going to be a I think a, I think it'll be pretty consistent stylistically with you know there obviously there'll be new themes and like Book two has the introduction of the Gamelon, um, which, you know, it's hard to tell right now how, how big of a part it'll, it'll play. But um, As long I, as you get to say Gamelon, I think I, exactly. that's the win it's just, there. It's such a great word. <laughs> Sounds just as good. But, um, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, there, there's a thematic consistency that I'm actually sort of trying to keep um, for many reasons. Like with Avatar Last Airbender, even though there was a stylistic consistency, there was a million themes. I mean, literally there was probably like 300 themes or something, maybe probably more. I mean, cause there was a theme for everyone, even if they were on screen for, for 25 seconds, you know, <laughs> like once. Cabbage with, man theme. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> for instance, um, or the guy that, that, uh, that guide and the, the, the Canyon guide. <laughs> I don't know. He does. We need a whole like theme for a cabbage corp commercial. Basically. <laughs> yes. It has to happen. Uh, I like point. that. Yeah. It's a good idea. <laughs> Also, so Jeremy, but, we've been asking all of our guests who are coming on today because uh, this this whole marathon is part of the uh, film aid uh, uh, donation that we're raising right now. So, kind of wondering, like, do you have any specific um, any specific films that kind of changed your life in a in an interesting way? And I guess also in your case, any specific uh, musical experiences as well. I'd say, um, well, the first film I don't think it was necessarily the music, but the Karate Kid. Karate Kid killed me. Nice. I watched that. Okay. I watched that so many times with my older sister. We knew every <laughs> word. We would re- we would sit there and recite it like just in real time, watching it go like as if we we're in it. At Footloose, <laughs> we did the same thing with Footloose. There were some great lines in there. I remember reciting th- lines, you know, that I had no idea what they meant. Nothing that tops sweep the leg, Johnny. <laughs> no. To be honest. Okay. And that moment, and that you know, that moment, the way it was directed with the music and the whole build up and the release mm-hmm. of the whole thing was, you know, we went into the that position, whatever that pose was with the 
knee up in the air. That the was crane, just too much. Yeah. yeah, the crane, exactly. It's just too much. It's too good. And I, I think those kinds of moments are really what, what I've always sort of been into. You know, the, the tension and the release, and it just floods you with, you know, emotion. Um, another sort of example of that is uh, The Incredible Hulk, the live action series. Oh, nice. Yeah. Um, you know, when he would, the, sort of that hooky moment when he would finally go into the state, the Avatar state, you know what I mean? The whole state. <laughs> And uh, that I sort of I remember thinking there was a parallel there when I was working on a thing in the Avatar state, and you know you feel that just something shifts, and that shift is so exciting, you know. Um, those kinds of moments really got me. Um, trying to think of other movies later, you know, later Twin Peaks, the soundtrack for Twin Peaks. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And Fire Walk with Me, the the movie as well as the series, but the movie actually I watched first, and I had no idea what was going on, but I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> just Jeremy so evocative. I'm curious that, that you mentioned the going Avatar state and uh, having some connection to the Hulk show. Uh, it is. I find I find yeah. very amusing. Um, but from a <laughs> that's me, standpoint, that, Brian and Mike never said that. <laughs> oh, no, no problem. Yeah. Um, but but I mean, going Avatar uh, is a very big moment, and seeing that at the end of the first season of Korra, I'm really curious about approaching that moment specifically. Uh, that whole finale is just an extraordinary. Speaking of tentpole music. Um, that's that in a nutshell. But plus, like we spent, I think, and guys, correct me if I'm wrong, maybe a month debating the last scene of Legend of mm. Korra. And yeah, like probably that, about. that sent the, the internet on fire. Um, <laughs> I mean, people didn't know how it was construed or like they had so many theories. And I'm curious about approaching that scene and finding the right balance of music there going into it because the, the, the moment is so devastating and then so enlightening. At a certain point, I'm working, uh, I start feeling it and then it becomes much more about the emotions than, than me sort of analyzing the scene. You know what I mean? I just, I just know what it means to me. Um, and that, that happened with that, that whole sort of third act. Um, at that point, you know, I was just, it's almost like you're an actor or something at that point and you're actually experiencing the, emo the emotions that are on the screen. Um, and that's sort of when things flow the best for me. Um, so, I mean, you know, I, so I guess I was sort of in my, avatar state <laughs> uh, at that point, you know just sort of feeling it just experiencing it and uh and a lot of the music in there is like you'll hear like little references to the end credits and you know just i just sort of played around as much as i could because there wasn't quite the musical uh, history yet there there was with like for instance the um, av the last airbender finale daughter and she loves that scene and she's just always talking about the crying the cry the cora crying scene oh my god that and, tear yeah so it shook the internet <laughs> she loves it so that that makes me feel good you know and we had this cool experience where we were i just wanted to see what if she would like it maybe i was stroke maybe i was trying to stroke my ego i have no idea what i was doing but i wanted to see <laughs> if she would be able to sit and listen to the music from that whole third act without watching it and remember what happened. 
you know, so we sat there and we listened to the music and just sort of talked about what was happening, you know, even though we weren't watching it. Um, and she was, and you know, she was, she was, she remembered. It was cool. It was really cool. You know? one, one of my favorite parts of Airbender were some of the songs that you wrote, um, oh, you yeah. know, lyric all out. And I think even before book one, I was on your case because I love leaves from the vine so much that right. I was desperate for more songs. Um, but obviously having watched book one, there probably wasn't a real place for that. Do you feel <laughs> like in book two that you'll have another chance oh, to do that? Or is that... <laughs> the Why? I just, I love... Leaves from the vine part two. What there's, a, there's, a, there's actually a, a musical uh, episode where the spirits, it's, a, it's like a musical where they all Don't sing. Don't even joke with yeah. me. <laughs> Don't um, even <laughs> no, I, I, I don't know. Like the tone just seems so much more like serious with Cora, mm. you know. Um, but who knows? I mean, seriously, like I said, things are so broad. So the range is so wide with with with, these, with Brian and Mike that I would ne- I wouldn't be surprised by anything, you know. Well, that's but that's the, where I'm surprised that they don't come to the table with more inspiration for you and like sit you down and make you watch things that inspire them. Or, well, or they, just, they like, did originally, but I think you know, honestly, I'm I I don't love working that way. You know, like because then you you sort of it's hard to unlearn that stuff. It's hard to forget it when you're working, and when you're because you know with commercials I spent I did a lot of um a lot of uh imitating you know, and when you imitate a lot, when when you're writing from imitation, it's never the same as writing just from some emotion that or some idea you got yourself. You know, obviously everything comes from everything, and you know, and no no one's reinventing the wheel, but you know what I mean. That listening to other people's music, you just end up going falling down that hill. That you're yeah, always- I mean, you never, you always feel like you're, you're always, you're kind of wearing a costume, right? When you're writing, <laughs> as opposed to just being you. You know what I mean? And at this point, luckily, you know, we've been working together long enough that they let me be, be me, and and they don't really, they don't seem to question it too much. So they're going to tolerate your eventual human bone flute solo piece. <laughs> they love it. They love that yeah. stuff. Just don't tell them, you know. Use right. it for the next villains theme yeah. or something. Yeah, totally. Except it sounds like you know a penny whistle or something. <laughs> <laughs> That's not threatening at all. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. thanks, Jeremy. I'm going to keep hoping for a world where we get the Korra soundtrack, and then maybe a fully reorchestrated uh, Avatar soundtrack too. That'd be nice. I think Ooh, I'd yeah. go to that concert. Jeremy. Let us yeah. know the Kickstarter amount, and we'll we'll see if we can make it happen. Apparently, <laughs> Let's do it. Let's do it. that was tons of fun like talking to jeremy always is because he's we're starting to develop the rapport here where he swings by before each new book and hopefully (laughs) hopefully we'll continue that as we push on into future books but uh right now we are on the precipice of book two spirits uh we have a trailer we have a premiere date and uh the trailer at least is sending me all sorts of bonkers because it went really quiet and it builds very slowly to a bunch of extreme action, but all the while we're seeing sort of two different worlds, a very painterly spirit world that looks like it's done in more watercolors and pencils and uh, with uh, Mm -hmm. thinner lines and perhaps a little bit more detail, and then back to our normal world where we get to see some waterbending and a tearing up Asami and some sort of 
weird creatures that we haven't seen in a while, like the owl from the library. Looks like he's going to be back and whatnot. Wan Shi Tong. Wan Shi Tong. <laughs> but what I really like about this trailer is that it took a moment to just show us the beauty of what we're going to see in book two and at no point stopped to discuss what the plot was going to be, which I'm completely <laughs> fine with because I, if I learned anything from uh, watching the first book of Korra, it's to put my complete trust in the people that are uh, you know, weaving this story for me because uh, I'm not going to be able to predict it as much as we on this uh, show will try from week to week. But in terms of just a trailer, I was just so psyched. Because like Matt's been saying, it's been a pretty bad summer for animation. And so to see this sort of, first of all, take its sweet time. Like the first, I don't know, 10 or 20 seconds is just revealing the title. And then all of a sudden to sort of cut with this beautiful track team score. Uh, these very quiet moments that slowly build into, you know, these bending battle moments is just, I don't know, it's like I'm drooling. I'm drooling by the time they get swallowed by the giant sea monster with the glowing mouth, and I'm, <laughs> I'm on board. And then that plus, we're looking at a Friday night animated show on Nickelodeon, it appears, which is just an, an incredible, um, I guess, show of confidence in this show and its ability to move its audience with it where it needs to be. So we're out of the, the morning ghetto. Yes, and not since Full House have I had plans on a Friday night. That's right. Uh, well, I, television. I mean, Not I think X Files. Thank you. Out. Yes, yeah, thanks, Devinder. X Files and Fringe for those of us that stuck with Fringe oh, on to Fridays. Uh, the, basically, every you know three years, there's a show on Friday that I get hooked into, trying to make people pay attention. And this year, it gets to be Cora, and hopefully, it'll it'll actually work because Book Two looks amazing. We're gonna meet, uh, I guess, Juan. If you want to take it from there, patches. The first Avatar? Yeah, no, I think that's what I'm most excited for. I mean, as you described, the show looks, the visuals, I mean, this is going to be uh, bursting with imagination this season because, oddly enough, I think book one is pretty grounded in realism. It's all about recognizable technology kind of intruding into this fantasy world. Um, But I don't don't think Avatar The Last Airbender got as crazy as the... um, the crossover with the spirit world, uh, the right. potential for that in book two. And I'm a little worried about fans uh, watching this trailer, um, especially the ones who were wondering if Amon was going to like come back and get wrapped up in book two. <laughs> Cause I'm like, what did we watch the same show? That storyline is definitely over. This, and I think most of the stuff. The in, yeah. Well, I think most of the stuff in book one is done. Um, I mean, they've described, Mike and Brian have described the arcs continuing on, um, but I don't really know what emotional arcs I felt were left on. on well, I mean, uh, we have, Asami just lost her father, so yeah. I imagine yeah. we'll be getting things like that, not like what was Amon doing wandering around the world for 35 years. Right, and I, I still think that Korra has to become the Avatar, just because she has hit Avatar state Right. started to understand that. I, I mean, there's obviously gravity with that. And I think they're going to do it in a, in a completely artistic way. Um, the intrusion of spirits into our world and her going there. Obviously, I think from the trailer, it looks like Mako and Bolin jump through some sort of rip in the space-time continuum, which is just my sci-fi nerd kind of popping out there. Um, coming into the spirit world, 
and seeing something I, I don't know what it's going to mean to her and that's I think she'll be provoked by the visuals as much as we are which is a really intriguing idea for her not to really know this world um, as much as everyone thinks they do we see benders and that's fantastical but we understand that now and they do too the people who live there do as well and I think this is going to be this is going to blindside Korra all this all these crazy monsters and also this history seeing Juan the first avatar and a oh, man I love that style that they're dabbling in yeah it's like the stories uh, old japanese tapestry style i'm sure there's a name yeah. for it and i <laughs> promise to learn it for future podcasts probably it actually it reminds me of uh asayo takahata who did um mm -hmm. grave of the fireflies mm -hmm. and he has some new anime or new animated films um something called the tale of princess kaguya coming out soon and that oh, yeah. is very much um keeping this old illustrative style of anime alive and i, I just can't wait to see what's these anime that sounds uh, like anima. an American. thank anime. you <laughs> thank you Patches. anime what you, you guys may be thinking of like the japanese woodblock print style yes uh, that was ukiyo-e uh which by the way i i think i talked a bit about this last season but it's kind of fantastic just like go back and watch some of that stuff um, because you can see the essence of storytelling uh, in a visual form there. And it's kind of fascinating to see how that style really translates to modern stuff. You could look at ukiyo-e prints of soldiers and then go look at something like Princess Mononoke in those really wide shots where you have a ton of soldiers fighting or attacking a town or something and it looks practically the same. So I love you know just charting our history of storytelling here. Yeah, I'm really psyched to see that in motion, too, uh, mm -hmm. just because that style's great, and especially with uh, the illusion of motion and stills. And so I'm really interested to see how Nickelodeon and the guys get it to move around like awesome. Mm -hmm. Yeah, One of the things that I'm surprised the trailer didn't hit on so much, probably because it has no dialogue, but we've been told several times through the cons and whatnot, is that we're going to be getting into Korra's family a little bit more. And sort of the idea that, you know, the Avatar comes from a grand tradition and so do each one of us as people. And I'm hoping that we get to, you know, spend some time with that. Um, God bless all the monsters and everything, but I'm really concerned that we're going back to the library just in terms of messing with our previous canon that it was definitely <laughs> buried but, um, yeah, you know, that's also in the Avatar, what is it, Avatar Expanded, those little pop-up video facts, whatever the, the professor that they left in the library, when the pop-up video thing gets to that, it's like, he's still in the library. So I'm like, what? So if that guy's going to come back, that's going to be weird. <laughs> he's a professor, still in the library. Still in the library. So we'll get to see how much the Avatar expanded world really becomes canon because apparently I we're coming back. I just want to see like corporate warfare with Cabbage Corp and uh, something else. Oh yeah, yeah, oh, we yeah. got to make, make that happen. Yeah. Well, we can write that fan fiction and post it on Tumblr. <laughs> um, one thing that I wanted to touch on before we wrap up is you know Mike and Brian in the commentary on the Blu-ray um, talk about how much they love depressing stuff. They love to cry and they love to get us. <laughs> like jerk our emotions around and i'm thankful for that because it makes them daring and it allows them to tackle challenging themes um because you can have a sad ending you know cora doesn't beat amon she gets scared out of her wits and she's left in tenzin's arms weeping i think that's an amazing image and it's an amazing feeling to see in this show i watched this trailer 
and I'm going to make a radical claim right here. Uh Um, (laughs) I see this trailer for book two, and I see Janora all over it, Tenzin's daughter. Um, I'm wondering what part she'll play. She seems to be really in tune with the spirit world, and she might be a a helpful guide for Korra in some way during this season. But I can't help but think of, of how much they like sad things. And I'm convinced. No, Janora's don't say gonna, it. Nope. Gonna die. Oh, okay. Janora's going to die. Janora's going to die. This is why people hate our podcast, guys. <laughs> you put I, that, I, that, okay, now so I, have I was betting on somebody else last season. Yeah, I know. Now we're going to be... you thought Bolid was going to die. Now we're rooting for the death of a little girl. That's... I'm not rooting for the death. <laughs> Bolin like, can still die. There's but, bubbling uh, oh dread. There's bubbling dread. <laughs> and I just know that something sad is going to happen. I'm going to be so sad. No, Janora's probably going to live. Everyone's probably going to live. There's going to be a lot of other dramatic moments that uh, are, are more authentic than that. But I can't help. I'm, I'm a fan. I'm getting excited for the show to come back. I can't help but think someone's going to die. <laughs> well, I think that's a good place to say, hey, guys, if you're listening to this podcast, head to RepublicCityDispatch.com because we're rebooting our ongoing discussions, question and answer, what have you. I'll be, you know, making Tumblr part of my uh, daily stops in the morning to try to favorite some awesome Cora stuff, be it your art or theories or what have you, cool videos. Because we're back. It's back. It's happening. It's book it two. Is. We're in it. I can't believe it. Um, and I guess that wraps things up. So why don't we tell the people where they can find us on this crazy internet spirit world? Devendra? Sure. You can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash Devendra. And I write about tech every day at VentureBeat.com. I also podcast about movies and TV at SlashFilm.com. Dave? I'm Dave Gonzalez. I spell that first part D-A-7-E, which is also my Twitter handle. I write about superhero movies and superhero movie news at latino-review.com, and I'm on the Operation Kino podcast with Mr. Patches at opkino.com. And I am Matt Patches. I am writing all over the place on a daily basis about movies and pop culture and all sorts of nonsense. I collect it all on mattpatches.com, my Tumblr, and um, I'm on Twitter at Mr. Patches. Um, so as Dave said, we're back. We're excited. We can't wait to talk to you about Book Two Spirits this season and um, help us spread the word. Tell people we're back and we want to have a great conversation this season. So we will talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.